Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Today, we're going to be talking about chapters six and seven of The Light We Carry. Uh, the first chapter is on, it's called Partnering Well. And the second chapter is about Michelle Obama's mom, which is titled Meet My Mom. So uh, as we get started, what were some initial like thoughts, takeaways uh, that y'all had? I listened to the Meet My Mom chapter twice. I went ahead and got it on Audible. I, okay, I'm going through with my parenting my 16-year-old son the things that she talked about, how pretty much like you can be the best parent in the world and a kid's going to turn out how they're supposed to turn out regardless of what you do. I mean, not necessarily, but you know, there's things that you can do to support. I just loved how her mom, how, how did she put it? Um, she did as little as she could, but it wasn't because she was lazy by any means. It was because she was teaching her children strength and resilience and how to advocate for themselves. And God, I just, I read that twice and her foes at the four rules. It was wonderful. I really, really enjoyed that. I know she mentioned something about it earlier in the book where it was talking about like, if you swoop in and do everything for your children, it makes them, you know, dependent on you. Um, so now we kind of see where that comes from. She like alluded to it, but this is like a whole chapter about her mom. So it's interesting though, how she, and she seemed to get teary as she was narrating it, but when she wanted her mom to come to the white house, um, and she said, cause you know, I come home hungry and just need a snack too. <laughs> you know, like I'm still that little child inside that needs, needs her mom. Um, so I found that really moving. Um, what a special bond. What, a, what an awesome mom, man. I thought it was really relatable too, because, um, my mother also needed my grandmother at one point in time when we were growing up to kind of be there to prepare our lunches and make our dinner as soon as we got off the bus, help us with homework. And so for me, it kind of, showed me that it doesn't matter how old you are sometimes you do still need your mom and I'm not a parent but just reading that I'm like man maybe I should probably you know thank my mom for doing the best that she could while still being um you know a child herself in her mother's eyes one thing that really really stuck out to me is like whenever they had conflict her or her brother she would tell them you come home to be liked and loved like you don't have to worry about that when you're out there you do what you're supposed to if they don't like you you come home and we like you so who cares I love that because I'm always I feel like behind the scenes mediating between my children and fill in the blank you know like a boss a teacher or whatever and, you know, and, and I love how she says, do you need me to get involved? That one question. And I asked my children that question. And I would say 9.9 .9 times out of 10, they say no. 
Like, I got this. You don't, you don't need to get involved. Um, it also validates me for making my kids do their own laundry <laughs> and cleaning their own room. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, my son, I taught how to make a white sauce so he can make biscuits and gravy. He can make homemade mac and cheese. He can make a lot of stuff with it. So, you know, I guess people might think I'm a hard ass or whatever, but they're starting to, you know, my daughter went to school and knew knew how to take care of herself, I, I think. But she- well, we'll start with that chapter since it resonated the most. And then we'll go back to chapter six, the chapter about her mom. Now, I did read her memoir, so I kind of know kind of about that relationship more, but not so much about the dynamic of her bringing her mom to the White House with them. But I think as far as, because it more so focuses on being a mother, there was one part that stood out because... Uh, I'm married and I have a three-year-old toddler with like a a speech delay and um, we're, you know, getting early intervention and stuff like that. Whereas I tend to be really anxious about pretty much everything. Uh, When it comes to my daughter, that's like the one thing that I don't hyper fixate on. It's like, I've been able to be the calm one about parenting, whereas my wife somehow you know, spontaneously got some anxiety and it's specifically focused on our daughter, you know? Um, So we balance each other out that way. I can't be anxious about the things she's anxious about. So one part that stood out to me were like expectations of mothers. So on page 193, uh, she says, for mothers, the feelings of not enoughness can be especially acute. You can hear my toddler screeching in the background. She wanted to be featured here. The images of maternal perfection we encounter in advertisements and across social media are often no less confusing uh, or fake than what we see on the enhanced and photoshopped female bodies, starved, carved, and injected with fillers that are so often upheld as the societal gold standard for beauty. But still, we are conditioned to buy into questing after not just the perfect body, but also perfect children, perfect work-life balances, perfect family experiences, and perfect levels of patience and calm, despite the fact that none of us, again, truly none, will ever live up. The doubt generated by all this sacrifice can be potent and undermining. It's hard not to look around as a mother and think, is everyone doing this perfectly but me? And that made me think a lot about my wife because she's I think from the very beginning, she's had these, um, you know, because we're only having the one child, right? So kind of the pressure of needing to do it perfectly. um, She's, you know, she's had her moments where she's like doing the comparison thing or, you know, she's has peers and coworkers who have young children and she'll have conversations with them. And then you get into the, well, so-and-so's daughter was talking at eight months and walking, you know, whereas our daughter didn't walk until she was about two years old. And, you know, we got her involved in speech therapy and things about like a year ago. And she's still, you know, speech delayed and stuff like that. And so she just has her moments where it's like, well, am I doing something wrong? Am I not doing, you know, same thing now with potty training, right? She's, our daughter is just taking her time on, on things. So the, the I think the pressure, and I guess the perspective I'm getting here is that it's more so on mothers than it is on fathers. So that was kind of one thing that like jumped out at me from that section. Um, did anyone have any uh, anything to add to that? Or I would love to. I've I've lived through the 
relentless comparison of my child's ungifted. Well, my child is this, my child is that. Um, you know, my daughter was never identified gifted, um, but you know, she she was fine on it in every sense, happy, healthy in her schooling, and you know, I, I just never did that. But I did feel like, you know, parents frequently compared. And their children were a lot of times overscheduled. Um, all of these, you know, certain activities, whereas we just had, I, they they had one after school activity. It was changed, but essentially they, she was never doing more than one after school activity when she was younger um, until she could do clubs and stuff in high school. Um, my do- My son is dyslexic. And so he, um, you know, it's been hard. Like my sister-in-law is constantly saying how smart her boys are and how they're in the, in Chesterfield, they have the center-based gifted program. And, you know, she will say things like, well, and our kids don't go together, but our, uh, my other nephew did. And she would go so far as to say, well, my children won't ever be in the class with your, with your son. You know, I know it's, yeah. So she's, um, the comparison, even within a family environment, and then you add the social media layer where you've got these women making bento boxes and cutting shapes out of sand. I mean, what the hell? My kids made their own lunch, even in elementary school. I was like, if you're old enough to slap some bread together and meat, you're making your own damn lunch and or you're going to buy, you know, like that. That's just it. I don't, I don't have the time. I don't want to deal with it. Um, and cause half the crap they'd pack, you know, half the shit they put in there would, co- I'd put in there would come home anyway. So, um, yeah, so no, the comparison, and I still feel it today, like even like through swimming and, you know, the, now he's getting close to call and my daughter went to Radford, which is like, you know, people make fun of Radford and, you know, it's, that was her first choice out of many, you know, um, God, the comparisons are just, it's hard, man. And I blamed myself for my son's dyslexia. I still kind of do. I'm like, maybe, maybe I didn't read to him enough. He was a second, you know, maybe. But I blame myself still even. I wonder. As she put her inner, what was it? Her inner, I forget what she called it, but from time to time, her that inner voice, her inner critic comes out. And she feels self, you know, feels bad, like she's not doing enough. And, you know, that's how I, yeah. I just want to say, I really appreciate your perspective and the, how real and raw that was, because I don't come from a cookie cutting mom. You know, my mom had, there's five of us kids. And first thing I want to say, Radford is a great school. I grew up in South Virginia. It's not just a party school. I'm an, I'm an alumni and we're fine. So yeah, I, yeah. I grew up in Roanoke. So yeah. It's a great school. Um, but my mom, she did the best she could. And whenever we went growing up in Southwest Virginia, there was a lot of stay at home moms. And my mom wasn't allowed to be that kind of mom. So my mom guilted herself for not. Still to this day, she says, I wish I spent more time with you guys. I wish I did. And I have to kind of constantly remind my mom at this age, I'm 27, saying, Mom, you did the best you could. You had five kids. 
We did great. You relocated us to Southwest Virginia to get away from violence. We grew up with food on our table. We grew up with clothes on the back, new school clothes, new school shoes. We, you know, we had two pairs of shoes, but that was all we needed. And so I kind of feel like growing up, it doesn't matter what we say to my mom in her back, in the back of her mind, I feel like there's always room for her to feel like she did or needed to do more for us. How do we as children show that gratitude to our moms, specifically our moms, to let them know, hey, what you did was enough and what she did is still enough. Like, how do we show gratitude to our parents at this big age? I mean, for me, it's just if you're supporting yourself and you're on your own and you're happy, healthy and paying your own bills. And, you know, for me, that's that's the showing like watching you become an adult. That's like when she talks about the coasters and the charcuterie and the expensive cheese you know, like that, seriously, like I got it. I was like that moment, like my son did something and I was like, oh gosh, we're, we might be turning a corner. The dumbassery might be kind of leaving us a little. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just I, for me, I, you know, I can't answer for your mom, but for me, it's watching my kids become adults and be independent and thrive. For me, that's the thank you. I like that answer. I think I'm going to probably go back and tell my mom, I'll pay this bill. <laughs> you know, it's hard out here. Take her out to lunch or something if you can. Like that would be the first time we paid for like my husband's parents. It was like, they're like, what's going on here? <laughs> and it wasn't anything fancy. I think we were at like Shake Shack or I don't know. We were in some place and we're like, we'll, we'll pay for you know, um, um, I think this is speaking to both you, Becky and Janzel. Um, growing up, I was a kid, kind of like Janzel's daughter. Nobody understood what I was saying. I had a, a lot of speech problems. I'm not going to use any bad language. Um, but it turns out I had an inner ear problem where I everything it sounded like I was underwater. That's how I heard everything. So when I was listening to Janzel's previous podcast and he talked about that, I was like, I know that feeling. Um, but luckily, even though my mom was very young when I was that age, my mom was in her early 20s when I was going through this. She advocated for me as far as the school system, because a lot of times the school system will just label you a dumb kid and you'll get left behind. All this stuff will happen. And she's like, no, this is not normal. This is not what's going on. So I had to be tested for dyslexia like your son, Becky. It was whole, a bunch of stuff that went on. And without proper parents in place to like advocate for you, even though they want to have you do as much as you can on your own, you kind of will get lost, especially in the public school system, because they just don't care. There's so many kids that they have to tend to. And everybody is on this one standard that if you're behind or you're advanced, you get lost. So um, it's a lot, but kids appreciate all of that. Like it doesn't go unnoticed. It's going to be times when Janzel's daughter looks back at it and was just like, man, my parents really showed up for me. And I'm sure yours do it already, Becky. It's like you need it. So as much as you try to prepare your kids to be on their own, they still need you. Like sometimes I'm sure your kids will still call you when they're like 30 and be like, how do I cook this? I have a headache. What am I supposed to do? So even though you can read and you know this stuff, it's still like, well, my parents been through this way longer than I have. Let me ask for help. So I was going to say the advocating piece, because I'm in the business of education. 
and I had to fight like I've never had to fight before to get Eric tested. I mean, it was, I, I thought it was ridiculous and sad. They kept saying, well, he's improving. And I'd say, well, two words is not improvement. It's an increase, but that's not an improvement. And so, I mean, it took me like almost threats, like it was, it was not, you know, like you said, Lena, it was not okay. And I'm firmly convinced that God made me a teacher for my son because I'm a career switcher. I started out at a bank um, and switched careers back into the classroom. And so, and I'm an insider and they still treat me bad. Like they still try to get away with this IEP and they still try not. And it's always once a year. It's like that one student in your classroom, they got to show out and you got to, I call them the sacrificial lamb. Every year there's a teacher who refuses to abide by his IEP. And I'm like, it is a legal document. You know, you, you don't have a choice, but how, like, I, the fact that your mom was able to do that for you is absolutely amazing because I don't know how people outside of education even know what they can do, you know, to fight for their kids. And I can piggyback on that. So I was supposed to be an elementary school teacher and then I did internships and decided I hate children, but I went to grad school and became a therapist and, you know, the rest is history. But I do have a minor in elementary education. I took the courses on like special education. I wrote, you know, IEPs like as part of those classes that I took and stuff like that. My wife is a school counselor. She literally is involved in that process with the students at her school and stuff. And so, like you said, Becky, uh, relatively insiders, right? Like I have understanding of how the, you know, it's a legal document and stuff like that. We did the early intervention part. And then when they turn three, they just shut off services. And you're supposed to then go into the school system and continue. And where we live, we're in Colonial Heights, and it's a relatively like small town. They were brushing us off. And I will say that most of this advocacy is actually my wife doing it. But she gets real. it got really frustrated to them because it was almost like they were trying to brush her off. And then, like you said, with the two words is not progress, like they when she originally got uh, early intervention, they had done occupational and speech therapy. And I will say the people they pair you with are not always the most competent. So some of them are just, you know, punching a clock. And I felt like that about especially the occupation because I went to one of the things that I'm like you're just like watching her play. Like it, it it didn't feel like she was doing anything. Uh, but then, you know, they, they, they shut it off at three and then you have to go with the school system. And they were kind of given my wife the like brush off of, Oh, well we can like see her once a month at this obscure time. The whole thing was a mess. So we were basically because, you know, we had to do the thing where basically like I pay my grandma's rent. Uh, at, at an apartment that she lives in Chesterfield and it's a better school. They have more resources than Colonial Heights, right? So I was like going to just put down my grandma's address uh, for my daughter so that she could get access to the services in Chesterfield. And magically, when you tell them, you know, Colonial Heights, hey, we're going to move to Chesterfield, uh, they want that money. So they changed their they changed their tune and now they're going to cooperate. But I I imagine this is not the end of it it's going to be a, a fight. And so just hearing, you know, what y'all two shared um, is definitely encouraging. And luckily I've been uh, sharpening my assertiveness uh, weaponry uh, all throughout my twenties. So I'm ready to be 
the the six foot five black parent who turns the fuck up uh, at the school. So uh, look for me on the news. I mean, I know for a fact that my son's file has bells and whistles and red lights flashing all over that bitch because they know. Because I don't email them often, but when I do, and I know everything to do, I put in the headline. I'll put um, I don't I, I don't I don't want to use his full name, but I'll put um, um, I, for, I I'm, I'm blanking on the word, but when you like, you're not you're not out you're out of line. Um, oh, out of compliance. I would say non-compliant with XYZ's IEP. I put that right in the title because with FERPA and with the searching stuff, that makes it front and center for these motherfuckers. They're going to get, I mean, uh uh-uh. I know exactly what buttons to push and you can push me so far and then mama bear comes out. I mean, I call it spat. It's, but it's only when they don't follow what, they just don't do what's best for him which is really best for all the kids. I mean, if we're going to go there. That's really good. Like the, just the advocacy, but you know, uh, two of the four of us in this are our parents and the other two have parents who have had to do that advocacy. The needing to like place everything else aside to like go above and beyond to like get what you need for your child is almost like a, it's not something that's taught. It's more so like there's just like these like guttural like emotions that make you just like, like you said, mama bear. Like y'all had said, and I'll we'll talk more about her mom in particular because she kind of breaks down her different rules and stuff like that. I really like how matter of fact she was and how her mom was like, they're learning. Like it, it, it was almost like, don't worry so much about it or you're in, and she wasn't overly like emotional. Uh, Michelle's mom, it was kind of like logistical and I'm very much like a, a left brain person, like the logical, like, you know, and I, I see a lot of myself in her approach. So I was interested to see what y'all's thoughts were on that. I loved it. It made it so simple and so like, almost just so badass in its simplicity, like, you know, like, I know they're going to be fine. And you always call them good kids, no matter what, because they are, they're all good kids. And I just, um, I loved it. I loved every, I think I loved every word of that chapter. Um, Just how simple and boiled, what is she, hard boiled, or she used some term, kind of like a generic term. And, um, yeah, I, it made me, I, I, I want to have lunch with this woman. <laughs> like, I mean, Michelle would be cool, but I want to have lunch with her mom. <laughs> you know, like that's, yeah. I like how in the book, they kind of mentioned how everyone, all the staffers at the White House all took time in their day to talk to the grandma. And that's how, you know, like even in the midst of doing their job, we needed that blessed to be blessed with the presence, you know, of a person with that kind of personality. I think her grandma kind of reminded me of Scissor's grandma off of control. You know, when Scissor's grandma in that album, for those that may not know, she she kind of gave us those words of wisdom, the reassurance we would probably hear from our own grandma saying, you know, very candid. 
yeah, it was more like this is what it is and this is how you do it with, you know, with assurance. And yeah, I think she just kind of reminded me of that. I mean, I think it was also good that she reminded Michelle that, hey, you did the same thing when you were their age. Cut them some slack. They're going to be okay. They're teenagers. This is what they do. Did any of y'all have like a favorite rule? Uh, I think there were four of them. Mine was number two, good parents are always working to put themselves out of business. And I kind of alluded to that before, but teaching self-reliance especially with me, my child is going to be an only child. So they, they say that uh, only children tend to become independent because they don't, they, they kind of have to, but I, I see that a lot or I see that as being something that would be really important. Kind of like as a therapist, um, my job is to work myself out of a job. Like uh, I very well could, you know, always hold everybody's hand and just keep them as clients forever and eternity. But they're only going to grow so much. Um, they would stagnate, right? So if if I'm doing everything I can, it'll get to a point where they don't need me as much. Or will they be like, hey, I'm actually doing well. I'll let you know if I need you in the future kind of thing. So kind of working yourself out of a job is something that, that makes, sense, makes sense to me. Um, my favorite rule was the number one rule was teach your kids to wake themselves up. While I am not a parent, I was, I am a child and I was one of those kids that had to get on that bus at 713 every morning. And if I didn't, excuse my French, my ass was grass. I, there was five of us kids. And if my mom had to get, come home from work to take us to school and don't let us forget our book bag, you know, it was a quiet ride to school. And so for me, my mom bought us all alarm clocks. We were getting up early in the morning to listen to VH1, MTV Trez. We were, we were, we already had a routine. And that routine was get up, do not miss that bus to save your life. Our bus driver knew our mother was crazy. So he would circle back around to make sure are y'all kids really not about to get on this bus today? Like what's going on? And so I resonated with that was wake up on time. And that's why I'm a morning person. I'm a fake morning person because of that, because I had that independence growing up, like no matter what, get up or else. I am like you, John Zell. I like that second rule, the how she says, I'm not raising babies, I'm raising adults. Um, I, that really, really, um, um, I just... Like I said, that that entire it's hard to pick one, but, but I think for me that's the big one. My son is a swimmer and he has to get up at 4:15 every morning. And one of our rules is we don't wake you up. If you want it, you gotta do it. So yeah. There there's something that a kind of like a mentor when I was first starting out in mental health had said it's like don't work harder than the client. Because you can get in positions where you're trying way harder than the person who's supposed to be doing the changes and being helped. And I think that applies to caregiving, too. It's like, well, I can't be more worried about you waking up and getting to your swim practice than you are. I'm not the one that needs to swim. <laughs> I'm not. I And like her, her mom said to them, I already got my education. Not like she was neglecting them, per se, but it was a 
no, you want this, go get it. And I, I really appreciated that. The other rule that uh, stood out to me, and I, it, I, it goes back to what I had shared about like the, the speech delay and needing additional supports and stuff like that. But parent the child you've got. I'm actually going to give this chapter to my wife to, to read uh, because parenting the child you've got is really important, especially removing the comparison piece especially like where our child is, she's three, she's a a toddler. So there's, you know, at this stage, everybody's at a different place. Like, uh, you know, some kids will have a whole conversation with you and some don't talk much or they, they say different phrases. Some of the kids are potty trained. Some of them are not, you know, and focusing on the person that you have in front of you instead of, because as parents, we idealize, like when you're, even the those of you who don't have children, like when you were younger and you're like, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to have kids and stuff like that. You had an idea of what that would look like. And when you actually get, you know, roll up your sleeves and stuff like that, it's nothing like what you imagined. And if you're trying to fit them into this, um, this mold or this ideal that you had, all it's going to do is make you more stressed out um, because that child is going to do what they want to do and they're going to do it at their own pace. So I like that parent, the child you have go with their flow instead of trying to force them into something. I'm not, I'm no no expert on this by any stretch, but I, that seems to be very fitting with the stage I'm at in parenting right now. That, um, because I've got two kids. So for me, it, it resonated with parent, the child, like, so I parented my daughter and I, I have to parent my son differently because there's two different kids. I mean, they have the same overall generic expectation, but when it comes to dealing with the human, they're two totally different people. And so you must tailor your parenting to that, that human. So that was how, and like you say, you can't force them, you know, my, my son may or may not go to college and I'm perfectly fine again, as long as he's self-sufficient and out of my house and off my payroll. Um, And, you know, I mean, and I mean, fully off. So yeah, that's, I, I, that, that was how I took that, that statement. I took it similarly and I'm not a parent, but I was a teacher and now I teach adjunct. Um, And I think that this is applicable very much in a teaching sense, but also just in how we treat people. I think it truly is that phrase parent, the child you've got is the separation of equality from equity and and what's really going to be effective. Um, That was something that I said to a student last week who was very, very upset about a conflict. And I thought that they were righteously very upset. But my response to them over how they felt about these peers was, do you want to be correct or do you want to be effective? Because holding some of those peers to the same level of accountability, and not just accountability, but capability as you, is probably not going to happen. It, you can have that standard, but I don't know that it can be met. However, I do know that they can meet standards X, Y, Z based on the talents and interests that they have. Um, and I just think that is really, really important because with our idea of belonging, if we don't allow people to step into their best self, we really can't expect the best outcome, the best performance for any party. We have to rely on 
strengths to balance out weaknesses. We have to look at interests to spark challenge. Um, and, and so that was just really important to me. Also, when I think about back to teaching small children, important to me with regard to discipline. Why am I softer, more gentle with one child? Why does someone get three tries, someone else gets one? And and how do you explain that trying to make this equitable versus equal? And I thought that was just a really succinct phrase, parent the child you've got that could be subbed out for teach the child you've got, work with the coworker that you've got, et cetera, parent with the spouse that you've got. Um, I think a, a lot of that could be filled in and just allowing people to show up as their best. I love that. I had a student who stands out. Um, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm a high school teacher. And um, I had to move the seats around because he couldn't stop talking and was being, he was very distracted and distracting. And when you talk about the equity or equality and he, he kept saying, well, why didn't you make, you know, Johnny move? And I said, well, I'm not talking to you about Johnny. We're talking about your behavior. And he kept on and on. I said, okay, well, if you'd like to equally compare yourself to Johnny, Johnny has an A and you don't. So that's why I moved you. So you, I know exactly. So you and his face, he got so mad at me. And I said, I don't like the look on your face right now. You're going to go to the bathroom, splash some water on it. And you're going to take a walk. And then you're going to come back and you're going to sit in the seat that I gave you. And then I expect you to try harder. So, um, I mean, that's, that's just how, <laughs> but yeah, but so Johnny was talking, but he didn't get moved because Johnny can handle the talking and get his, get his grades done. So no, it was not equal, but it most certainly was equitable for him. And, and I think that's, you know, on both sides too, right? There are times when I've lowered a bar, there are times when I've raised a bar and that honest assessment goes with some of the other rules too. What can you reach? But if I, if I lower a bar too much, you might just trip over it. And that's not okay either. So that really resonated with me, especially as the beginning of the semester is, is a challenge in determining priorities, commitment. Um, but I just, I got to push you to be your best. And everybody has a best that is of merit, but it won't look the same. I think for me, I can understand what you guys are coming from, but with me, it was, I was a younger sister, somebody that got all A's, was in the, all the gifted programs, school was super easy, super social, super talkative, I was the complete opposite, I didn't like people, I didn't want to talk, leave me in my little corner, so I didn't really start excelling in school, like I caught up in like middle school, high school, I was like an average student, but in college, I excelled, I was on the dean's list every time, and then my sister's like, I'm not doing this. What are you doing? It's because you learn differently and people don't always adjust your notice your differences, even your parents. My mom was just like, like both of you guys should get AIDS all the time. Well, sorry, mom, that's not going to happen for me. It's just not the way it's structured. So then once I finally started doing it in college, she was just like, were you just being lazy? No, it's just how my mind worked. It's not being lazy. It's just everybody's different. Even if you're siblings with the same general genes, you're going to be different. So I'm going to segue us back to chapter six. And now that I'm now that we're doing it out of order, I can kind of see uh, the mindset of how she structured the chapters because she like first talks about the marriage and then she talks about children, you know, but I think that there 
this is a good um, continue. I mean, the chapter literally comes after the one we discussed last week on friendship. So a lot of the elements of the chapter where she talks about her marriage and relationship with Barack are, you know, kind of a continuation of what she was talking about, like the the roles of friendships and stuff like that. But I like the because I've obviously I've read uh, Becoming, so I kind of know the story already. But I like that she shared more about her children in this, uh, and more specifically about her children as adults. Uh, so I'm going to start off with the section on page 155. She says, "The truth is that I'm hoping for uh, that our daughters won't rush out." of the flea market too quickly. And she said the flea market is kind of like the uh, looking around, exploring, not being too serious. Um, But she said, I hope they will instead linger a while, allowing their relationships to remain fluid and youthful. That uh, what I want more than anything is for them to prioritize learning the skills of independence, how to make a living, how to keep themselves healthy, fed, and happy, well ahead of signing up for a lifetime spent with another person. I tell them to focus on becoming whole people able to stand on their own. When you know your own light, you are then better prepared to share it with another person, but you have to practice your way through all of it, end quote. And so I like uh, her perspective and kind of learning how her now adult children are like figuring, you know, starting out in the world. Because I I feel like I grew up with them. So to like see them, you know, at, at least to hear about kind of how they're navigating that is pretty cool. But on the part of like having and having your shit together is honestly a myth because we never really get our shit together. Um, spoiler alert. We're basically the same people we were as children. We just got bills um, it maybe got a little bit more efficient at, you know, organizing our, our shit. But I will say that I, both my wife and I, we met each other after we had already like, well, I was finishing, like I was almost done with grad school and she had already completed uh, grad school. So we were like, well into like establishing our careers and stuff like that. And we pretty much who, knew who we were. Um, as individuals. And I will say to the quote that I just shared, kind of being assured of who you are definitely made it a lot easier in like uh, forming a relationship because it wasn't like figuring yourself out simultaneously while trying to figure out the relationship. So I like that she's encouraging her, her daughters not to rush because as a therapist, I see a lot of parents who are like pushing their their kids to oh get the career get you know get married before you're too old and your eggs are dried up or you know whatever dumb shit that they tell people uh, there's this thing called science it's really um great like you know childbearing is not as uh much of a ticking time clock as they like to tell people but i like to see this alternative perspective because i see so many people like pressuring you know, people who are not even done with college, like, oh, when are you going to, or who are you dating? Like, when do you, are you going to get married and all of this stuff? And the second you get married, they want to know when you're going to have kids. It's like, we, they real the societal pressure of doing stuff on time or as expected is very heavy. And we're almost like fast forwarding past the whole maturity and the growing parts. So I, I like her her perspective. I'm interested to see what y'all have to say about that. I kind of feel like that's changing a little bit. Um, you know, the the expectation that you have kids, I think, 
I think there are more and more people who are opting to not have kids. And, um, you know, before you would be considered selfish and, you know, how dare you, how dare you not? I mean, I think it's the most unselfish thing you can do if you know that you don't want kids to not bring a little life in this world. Um, cause you know, it's, it can be a bit of a shitstorm, and, um, <laughs> Because, you know, it's a genetic crapshoot. You never know. You just never know. But, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, crap, what was the other stuff that you were saying, John Zell? The, um, the, oh, the. Um, Societal expectations to marry, have children. I Look like I you never, have it all together before your maturity catches up. Yeah, I never, I honestly didn't want kids for a very long time. And my husband and I met when we were quite young. We got married looking back very young. And um, somehow, you know, we've just had a very, you know, good, solid relationship. Um, I, I mean, something we work at. Um, but the I didn't want kids. And, and then I turned 28. And I remember my grandmother died. And for some reason, that just, that event is what kicked off my wanting to have kids, but it wasn't, I mean, I remember being physically repulsed at the thought of even having a child for a very long time. It was not something that I, I I was even sure that, that I wanted. Um, But the pressure was there because when we did finally get pregnant, I remember my husband's mom was like, finally, yes. And I'm like, it's been five years. Like, (laughs) You know, I'm 28 now. It's, you know, and then I had my son at 33. Um, They're nice and spaced out. What are y'all's thoughts on some of the other insights that she shared about relationships? Obviously, she's coming from the vantage point of her relationship with uh, Barack, but I thought there were quite a few, uh, like, interesting things. Um, Something pithy is that, uh, you know, uh, understanding how you're going to put the roll of toilet paper and I'm team over over here, just like the Obamas, uh, because if you're the other way, honestly, you can leave the zoom call, but you know, that was kind of like a funny, you know, anecdote, but I, I thought that there were some, some really good things in there. Like the myth of things really being 50, 50. That's one of those other things that you think of as a, when you're younger and you're idealizing, but it's not like that in reality. But those are just some that jump off the top of my head. I'm, I'm interested what y'all found beneficial from her story of talking about her relationship. Um, so my one-year marriage anniversary is coming up next month. And boy, was I not prepared. I was prepared, but I was not prepared what it felt like to be legally binded because it's easy to just to dip and leave. I like to cut people off. I'm not going to lie. I can't cut him off now. He's a part of me and I'm a part of him. We're whole. We're one. But the part that I needed to hear the most, and it was kind of like Michelle read me from my filth because I literally had the conversation with my husband and not putting them out there. But the pressure we get from society as women, especially as black women is make sure you have a husband. And as a Southern black woman, I should add, make sure your husband can build, make sure your husband can provide da 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 da. He should be this. He should be that. He should be held to the standard. And it's unfair of me to put him on that pedestal 
without also putting myself on that pedestal of the unrealistic expectations of what a husband or a wife is supposed to be. So the quote that I highlighted and annotated was on page 165, she said, I learned early on that a partner is not a fix for your issues or filler of your needs. People are who they are. You can't make someone become something they don't want to be or into a type of person they had never had a, never had modeled for them. That was kind of like confirmation from God because I just got done chewing him out saying, why can't she just be like this? Why can't she just be like that? And it made me realize, but wait, you know, you need to take a step back and realize where this is coming from internally. Why do I need him to be that for me? You know, why do I need him to have this unrealistic expectation that I'm forcing on him? It made me reevaluate my marriage and what I stand for as a person who is a free thinker and is so carefree. Why do I care so much of what he is when I should be caring about my own identity? I think this kind of grounded me to realizing that, okay, you want him to fulfill this role because you didn't have that role growing up. Yeah, yeah. Daddy issues, mommy issues, you know. But it kind of made me look back and say, well, why am I expecting that of him? You know, so I appreciate Michelle for putting that in the book. We need to hear that as a society. Um, a lot of my friends are in relationships where sometimes I mean, it'd be like the bare minimum that we want from our significant others. But this is one of the things where it's just like, this isn't, that's not needed to have a decent marriage. Let people be who they are and don't force them to be something they're not because you're not going to be happy with whatever you get. And when she said the grass is not greener on the other side, I felt that because I can look at another person and say, dang, you know, I wish my husband had that quality. But at the end of the day, if I was with that person, they still want to make me happy. The person I chose is the person I chose and I did it for a reason. Even though I wish I could be a stay-at-home dog mom, it's just not realistic. <laughs> but she was talking about the different ways that a relationship can exist because the ideal of course is like oh you meet the person you fall in love happily ever after and everything like that but like Imani said that first year for me personally it was the second year that was like who is this person right but on page 157 she says our partnership is something we have created together we inhabit it every day making improvements to it as we're able sometimes letting it exist as is for stretches when we're preoccupied with other concerns. Our marriage is what we launch from in Landon, a place where we can each be thoroughly, comfortably, and often annoyingly ourselves. We've come to accept that this sphere we dwell in together, the energy and emotion between us may not always be tidy and ordered or exactly how one or both of us wants it, but the plain and reassuring fact is it endures. For us, it has become a solid piece of certainty in a world where certainty seems exceptionally hard to come by, end quote. And I will add an insight from a, a, a book outside of this. Uh, there's a book called No One Succeeds Alone by Robert Refkin. And he talks about his relationship with his wife in there. And he has this, uh, he uses this like concept of, 80 20 for example a person may have 80 percent of what you're looking for and people will either you know 
pound that person over the head to like get the other 20% together to be perfect. Uh, or they'll leave 80% in search of the other 20% and then find out they only have the 20% and they want the 80, right? And I think that is a very real kind of uh, concept in, in which like, you know, we think of like the ideal of, oh, my soulmate, my, you know, the reality is you're not going to get a perfect person. And like Michelle said, like, sometimes the relationship is as is sometimes you don't have the energy to, you know, um, you know, choose your battles and not everything can always be like fixed and, you know, perfect all the time. Sometimes it's just you're surviving. Like, as I'm doing this call right now, um, the bed is completely covered in laundry that needs to be folded, right? Um, and this, this thing. I, I can down- see you're folding it. I can see yeah, folding it. You can see the that. reflection. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the sink might be full of dishes. And, you know, uh, the goal was to have everything done by a certain time. And Maya Jane decided she was going to just pour the spaghetti sauce all over herself. Right. Like for me personally, and I'm, I'm kind of type A um, in liking things to be orderly. Cause I, I, I have an anxiety disorder. I like to have uh, order and routine because it helps me to feel grounded, but, uh, something that being married to a person who's kind of go with the flow has ADHD kind of a free spirit. It's, you know, a big challenge for me is to not be so hard on her to get the other 20% to be perfect because uh, I'm not 100%. I'm not 100% um, all the time, right? But trying to find ways to compromise and to um, be flexible in that. Um, And like Michelle says, it's not easy and it's never perfect and damn sure ain't 50-50. One way or the other, sometimes someone's picking up more of the slack. Sometimes it is closer to 50-50. So I just thought I would share those those various insights those those things resonated with me personally i like the hawaii analogy how when they first went there she was still learning who he was and she was disappointed when it came to raising the girls when they were younger she was upset with him because he wasn't there like he was supposed to be and she didn't understand that he loves them no matter what so then at the end you know she in the beginning she was like i wanted my nice sunset dinner on the rooftop with drinks and then at the end of the chapter, she's like, we got it after the presidency, after the girls are grown and they were able to look back at all the years they've been together, making all these memories and doing all these amazing things. And then she was like, I understand who my husband is now. Yeah, I know. My husband and I, well, we started dating in 1993. So that that this October, it'll be 30 years that we've been together. And so we, we got married in 96. So our 27th anniversary is coming up and it's, yeah, it's, you know, there are ups and downs and it's very obvious which battles my husband picks because my side of the bathroom is like bottles and crap everywhere. And my, my bedside table is like piles of just bag or what, you know, like books piled up and, and his is like, everything is perfect. You know, he has nothing on his side of the bathroom sink, you know, like, and um, he's just like, do you think you could clean up that pile sometime soon? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, and I know I'm not perfect, like, you know, and, and, and neither of us are, but 
but we we have we've kind of fallen you know and you know fallen into this sort of comfortable groove of just you know things are things are just going and you know or if I don't have a heart attack because of my son um I think we'll be we'll be good um but no I I loved I loved her analogies of like we fall back into the comfortableness the the steadiness the and that's what he is my steady Eddie like I am the boat on the ocean. He is literally the anchor at the bottom. And that is how we, we've, I think, done so well. Um, we complement each other in that way. Um, so it was just interesting to me, too, that she talks about the number of people that reach out to her for relationship advice. Like, of all people, why would somebody that's never met you, that just happens to be a former first lady, be able to give you relationship advice about two people she has never met in her life? Like, the unrealistic expectations that people have is just crazy to me. Well, and that kind of, to me, reminded me of, like, my classroom and my main classroom management, because I formed relationships with all of my students, so they behaved well for me. And teachers would, would ask me, how do you keep your class under control? And, and there are things that you have to be willing to do or sacrifice or, you know, to make that the, that relationship and, you know, that thing work. So, um, you know, I don't I just made that connection in my head. And I've tried to help people with their classroom management. But in the end, or there, I guess I've never helped a marriage, but in the end, it's, it's your classroom, it's your marriage, and you have to figure out what works. And, you know, with my daughter, she's been with the same boy for a while now. And before they went to school, college, I said, you need to maybe consider dating other people. And if, because, you know, if you find someone you meet and you find interesting, I don't think neither one of you should say no. Both of you need to go forward and, and try to I guess go to the flea market or what? What, what you, I don't know if it's flea market, whatever. But you, you know what I mean. Like, um, so because it's work, and when you commit and decide, you've got to, you know, there, there are, you, you have to make um, concessions, um, you know. And I love it how she came from an under toilet paper household. And now they're over. Obama is over. There's a whole Simpsons. Well, there's a Simpsons episode about that. They call CPS on a family because they're under. <laughs> anyway. I'm glad I'm not the only one who got a kick out of that that part. I, I feel very strongly about houses. it. If I'm in a house and it's under, I... <laughs> Just out here doing the Lord's work. I don't look in the, I don't look in there the 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 cabinet or whatever. I'm fixing the toilet paper roll. Really enough, I have no preference. Like it, I could care less. I'm like it's toilet paper. Maybe this is just my ADHD, but I'm just like it's freaking toilet paper. I don't care if it bothers you, change it. I'm not gonna notice the next time I go in there. I'm not gonna remember from one time to the next. I care about my bathroom so little that I'm not under or over. I'm on the counter because the toilet paper roll has been broken for the last eight months but you know i'll get to that in my next life currently ours is i put a new roll there this morning it's over but it's literally sitting on top of the 
the cardboard thing because my brain did not have the capacity to take it off of the thing. But it is it is perched on top of the thing and it is over as God intended it to be. So it's kind of a hybrid. It's funny how something is so small, but like, you know, like her grandmother, I think it was it. Was it her grandmother was like, I don't care how you do it. And so her grandfather won that battle and he was under. And so she grew up under, I guess, because her mom did. And then so. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that glass that's... table she mentioned with her other grandma though was insane. I mean, I, I know my uh, my grandma was like that with her china cabinet, which I still don't understand the point. Like dishes you never want to use, so they nobody touches them. It makes no sense to me. I had a friend who had white carpet in the living room, and it always had vacuum marks. And they were like, "You can't go in there. You can't go in there. You can't leave footmark footprints in the vacuum marks." And I'm like. And why in the hell is it by the front door? Like, how are you supposed to get in the house? I mentioned before that I'm very much like a, I wouldn't say a neat freak, but definitely like, I like things tidy. I like order and stuff like that. Having a child will, it ruined, or I wouldn't say ruined my life, but it definitely like trained me really quick that it's her world and I'm truly just the help. I'm just a custodian because I can vacuum her room. I can clean it. It could be perfect and everything like that. Damn it. If I don't turn my back to go open some mail or something. And I just hear all the Legos. I could just see her just looking perched from whatever um, post she has just like slow motion, just pouring everything out. And it's literally like the room just threw up on itself. Like I did nothing. So I just don't clean her room anymore. I just shut the door. See, and oh. that's that's where my husband's at, I think. But my my son did that with a box of Rice Krispies one morning, but we actually had the best time with it. I'm like, what other food? And at that point, my floors were very clean. Now it's like, I don't know. I, I'm like, I've just absolutely given up. So I'm like, you could eat it, you know, you could crunch it, you can whatever. Like, let's, you know, like it it was fun. I mean, you know, who cares? It's Rice Krispies. Um, but yeah, no, when you say it's their world, we're living in it. When she talks about her girls, Barack was out of town and her girls were up in the playroom messing around and she kept yelling, you know, get down here, time to brush your teeth. And then how she tells them basically how she quits. She's quit parenting. She's done. And the old one, her little lip quivers and like, no, it goes and brushes her teeth. And she goes, and the other one was like, she goes, she heard her run upstairs and turn the TV back on. <laughs> so she knew exactly who she was dealing with at that moment at four and six. The one like was like the, the people pleaser, like, no, don't feel this way or whatever. And the other one is like, well, fuck you. I'm going to go. I'm going to go do what I want to do. You're like actually inconveniencing me. That's definitely my daughter. Uh, I ordered the the self-cleaning version. Uh, I, I ordered melanin. I didn't get that. I didn't get self-cleaning. I didn't get an introvert. I didn't get quiet. And I didn't get by the book. Um, so nothing I, I ordered did I get, but she is uh, 100% who she needs to be. And again, I've just learned that my role is to 
parent the child that I have, as Michelle Obama said, and strap myself in for the ride and definitely can't push her into a mold that she's not supposed to go into because I'm just going to be the one stressed out. She's going to be carefree running around living her best life. So this was like a fun way to end. I think uh, the uh, toilet paper debate um, is, you know, truly what politics need to be focused on right now in this time of history. So I'm glad that we were able to um, agree that either you're indifferent or you're on the right side of justice uh, in this community here. As far as next week, we have chapter eight through the end of the book. Um, So we'll be wrapping up uh, this book uh, in our meeting next week, same time. And as always, I appreciate y'all for showing up and for working through uh, this book with me. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.